in case you didn't get the memo, you might be eaten by cannibals one day. You might end up in their guts one day. That's what Ezra 4 is going to tell us today. So open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 4. We're continuing our series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are one book in the Hebrew Bible. We've entitled this series, The City of God, because we are called as a church to be the city of God here in the city of Santa Maria. We're called to be the city on a hill that Jesus mentions in the book of Matthew, called to be the alternative society in the world in which we live. So Ezra chapter 4, we're going to pray one more time because some of you are dying to know what I mean when I say that there's a chance you might be eaten by cannibals one day. So let's pray one more time, and then we'll dig into God's word. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus. He lived the life that we could never live because we are sinners. We're messed up. He died the death that we deserve, Father, because we're sinners and rebels and we're messed up. And you raised him from the dead to prove that it is true, to prove that you accepted his work on our behalf. And so we want to be like your son, Father. He loved his enemies even though they hated him. Jesus went to the cross for enemies that he would save. Father, your son was empowered by the Holy Spirit and the word of God. And he had a steel spine and a soft heart. And I pray for us as a church that that would be true of us as well. Do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In 1858, when John Patton planned to go as a missionary to the South Seas in the New Hebrides, which is now Vanuatu, an older Christian said this to Mr. Dixon. I mean, said this to Patton. Mr. Dixon said this to John Patton as he was leaving. The cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. Now, Mr. Dixon had good reason to say this because 19 years earlier, two missionaries went to try to reach these cannibalistic people. And within minutes of arriving on the island, on the shore of the island, to tell them about Jesus Christ, within minutes, they were killed and then grilled and eaten for dinner. So Mr. Dixon had good reason to warn John Patton, you will be eaten by cannibals. John Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Now, what in the world gives a man this kind of resolve? Only the gospel. When a man or a woman is enthralled with Jesus Christ as the supreme treasure of their life, they can stand up to anything that this world will throw at them. For some, though, there is no fear of becoming the buffet for a group of headhunting cannibals. For some people, there's no fear of undergoing severe persecution for the gospel. But for others, there is great fear when the world threatens you. It's just a part of being a disciple. Sometimes you have great 
resolve. And sometimes you have great fear, which is what we'll see with the Israelites in Ezra chapter 4 today. But in the end, it's the grace of God that sustains us. In the end, God has the last word. Now, I like to think that I have no fear of persecution and no fear of death threats. I like to think that if threatened by cannibals, I would stand up with no fear. But the reality is that if push came to shove, or if push came to shoot, being shot with a gun, I might be scared to death. I just don't know. I've never been in that situation. was in a similar situation in Africa once where I thought, this guy might kill me. But for the most part, I really just don't know. All that I do know is that there's a good chance that I would fear for my life. But one thing I know for sure is that Jesus would be faithful to me no matter what. I have no idea how I would respond to persecution. I have no idea how I will respond to persecution. But I know 100% how Jesus will respond. And that just might be the thing that gets me through whatever I do and whatever I face. We may not face headhunting cannibals in our neighborhoods or workplaces, but we will be hated by the world. Jesus said we would. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, as Jesus talks to his disciples, he lets them know this. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. For remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Ezra 4 is just a picture of what Jesus endured for us. Ezra 4 is the John chapter 15 verses 18 through 20 of the Old Testament. Ezra chapter 4 is telling you what Jesus is telling you in John 15, and that's this, the world will hate you. It may be a head-hunting cannibal. It may be your mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law may be a head-hunting cannibal. But people will hate you because you follow Jesus Christ. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be startled if people hate your guts because you love Jesus. People will hate you precisely because you follow Jesus Christ. And Ezra 4 proves that to us today. God's people have always been hated by the world. But there is no reason to fear. So please understand that. If this is all you take away from the sermon, I want you to understand this. There is no reason to fear. But there is also no guarantee to how any of us will react to persecution. We might have courage and we might be cowards. But there is a guarantee that the world will hate us. And there is a rock solid guarantee that Jesus will be faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That promise is enough for me right now that we could end the sermon. 
Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. That's enough truth to get this unfaithful disciple through the next week. But alas, I must keep preaching because this is part of my job. And part of my job is to give you a big idea to think about all week. So here's the big idea I want you to think about all of next week. The big idea of Ezra 4 is this. People will hate your guts, but you have to love them to death. People will hate your guts, Christian, because you follow Jesus, but you have to love them. You have to love them to death. Maybe giving up your life. You may be thinking you've heard that big idea before. That big idea is very similar to the last big idea from our series in the book of Galatians where I said this. If you love Jesus with all of your heart, people will hate you with all of their guts. We know that if we love Jesus with all of our hearts, if he is our treasure and we want to live according to the Bible, then we know that people will hate us with all of their guts. Today, we see how we are respond to this kind of persecution and this kind of hatred. We have to love them to death. And that might even mean that you die a martyr's death. That might mean that you get eaten by cannibals. People will hate you with all of their guts, but you have to love them to death. Because you are a Christian, this world will hate you. You cannot escape that reality But you are called to love those who hate you. That's discipleship. Jesus said in Luke 6, 27, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's exactly what we'll see in Ezra 4. So look at Ezra chapter 4, beginning of verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, to Yahweh the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. As we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us. In building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord. To Yahweh the God of Israel. As King Cyrus the king of Persia. Has commanded us. Now right off the bat. We get the identity of those who come against God's people. They are adversaries. The author of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Wants there to be no doubt in your mind. As to who these people are. They are adversaries. They are enemies. They are people who hate the people of God. And once these adversaries got wind that the returned exiles, the the returned Jews who came out of exile, that they're building this temple to Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel, to worship him, these adversaries approached Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the leaders. Now what caused them to show up? I think it's what we saw at the end of chapter 3 last week where this joyful, high decibel worship was happening where they're exulting in the Lord and rejoicing and so they're adversaries came to see what was going on but watch what happens here in the dialogue between them this is postmodern syncretism at its best this is the oprah winfrey show right here this is everybody worships the same god whether his name is buddha allah the tree in your backyard or whatever 
these adversaries say that they have been worshiping, as verse 2 says, your God ever since the days of Esarhaddon. So for a long time, they claimed to have been worshiping Yahweh. Now, Esarhaddon was an Assyrian king who reigned from 681 to 669 B.C., when Israel was carted off to Babylon because they had turned away from the Lord, Esther hadn't moved other people into the vacated areas of Israel. So these adversaries here at Ezra 4 had been living in Israel for a long time. Some of them were even involved in the syncretistic worship that you can read about in 2 Kings chapter 17, where they're worshiping Yahweh and worshiping other gods. But here's the test for the people of God at this point. How do they respond to these people? These people whom the author calls adversaries. How do they respond to people who claim to worship Yahweh, but they are not true Israelites? If they are going to be the city of God, the city on a hill, the alternative society, then they must stand up for truth. They have to be faithful. And here in Ezra 4, faithfulness equals narrowness. Let me say that again because sadly our culture's beliefs have crept in even into the church. Faithfulness equals narrowness. In order to be faithful to God and faithful to his word, Israel must be narrow-minded. They must be narrow-minded. They must be narrow-minded in their response to the adversaries. They must say something like this. There is only one God adversaries his name is Yahweh and you don't worship him because you worship other gods as well and Yahweh claims total allegiance he really means what he says in the first commandment and that's why the leaders reply the way they do in verse three you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now notice, two times we have the phrase, the Lord, the God of Israel. When you see Lord in all capital letters, it's the translators letting you know that in Hebrew, this is God's covenant name, Yahweh. So two times you have the phrase, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Contrast that with what the adversaries say. They say, your God. These people do not worship Yahweh. There's no personal connection for them. They don't say our God. They don't say Yahweh. They simply say, we worship your God. It's not personal for them. Yahweh is not their personal Lord and Savior. And so Jeshua and Zerubbabel and the other spiritual leaders of Israel draw a line in the sand here to let these people know, we do not worship the same God. That's narrow-mindedness, but that's love. That is loving your neighbor enough to tell them the truth. Some people would read this and say, that's not love. That's not being very loving. They would say, Israel's being intolerant here. But understand this, Grace. Being intolerant may be the most loving thing that you can do. Being intolerant may be the most loving and caring thing that you can do for someone. Being narrow-minded when it comes to the gospel is being faithful to the gospel. Here's what I mean. We cannot tolerate a misunderstanding of the gospel. 
The city of God, the city on a hill, the church, the people of God shines forth truth and not ambiguity. That's what the people of God have always been called to do. We shine forth the truth of God's word, the Bible, the truth of the gospel. We do not shine forth ambiguity. We do not shine forth tolerance. Kevin DeYoung says this, the early church was important because it was intolerable, and it was intolerable because it was intolerant. Not socially intolerant or cold-hearted or obnoxiously abrasive, but intolerant of any salvation but the cross, any God but theirs, and any Lord but Christ. We must be intolerant of any salvation but the cross, any God but theirs, any Lord but Christ. Here in Ezra 4, we see the people of God loving their adversaries enough to say, no, we don't worship the same God. You think you worship Yahweh, but you don't. And they said it knowing that they might die for it. Surely, that's why verse 4 says, the adversaries made them afraid. They were afraid for their lives. They were scared because they knew that the alarm clock waking them up in the morning might be just one of the swords of their adversaries going through their belly, going through their guts. All of this politically incorrect theology that I'm preaching, it's a nice little reminder that people will hate your guts, but you have to love them to death. You may have to look a loved one or a coworker or a neighbor in the, in the eye and tell them that without Jesus Christ, they are lost and going to hell or they will suffer forever. That's love. Telling them that is love. That's not intolerance. That's love. You speak the truth, but you don't be a jerk about it. You speak the truth with a broken heart for the lost. You speak the truth with a steel spine and a soft heart that is breaking, a soft heart that is breaking for the lost. You don't speak with pride, arrogance, and hatred. We are called to love our enemies, even when they hate our guts. You may have heard all the talk several years ago about Rob Bell's book titled Love Wins, Heaven, Hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. In his book, Bell claims that God's love wins and triumphs over all sin and evil and that everyone gets reconciled to God in the end. And some people, some Christians, were lapping it up like thirsty dogs. By the way, I think it's heresy. Here are a few of his thoughts. Will everybody be saved, or will some perish apart from God forever because of their choices? Those are questions Or more accurately, those are tensions we are free to leave fully intact. We don't need to resolve them or answer them because we can't. And so we simply respect them, creating space for the freedom that love requires. Leave this tension intact? Create space for freedom? There already is space, a massive gap between humanity, which is full of sinners, and a holy God. There's already a massive gap 
between us and a holy God, and only the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ can close that gap. And if that gap is not closed by faith in Jesus, then there will be eternity in hell forever. And Rob Bell says we need to leave the gap open and let's talk about it. Another thought of his. A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. And I believe it is. This, he continues, this is misguided toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Misguided to tell people that apart from Jesus, they'll spend eternity in hell? That's supposed to be toxic? Rob Bell is dead wrong. Love wins when the truth is told. And when the truth is told, people may hate your guts. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to discipleship. Now look at verses 4 and 5. And then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, how did these adversaries react to being told, you don't worship the same God as us? They began an onslaught of attacks designed to keep the people of God from building the temple of God. Now, notice their actions. It says they discouraged, they made afraid, they bribed people to frustrate their purpose. The Hebrew text here stresses that this was an ongoing, continual assault. It uses three participles here that you could translate this way. They kept on and kept on discouraging them. They kept on and kept on making them afraid. They kept on and kept on bribing people to frustrate them. And it worked because Israel quit. They stopped building the temple. Things haven't changed. The world will always try and squeeze the church into its mold and try to keep the church from being the city of God. There are always adversaries to the gospel. There are always adversaries to Jesus. And several weeks ago on March 4th, two Christian women in Somalia who used to be Muslims, who by faith trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they were beheaded by Muslims. And one of the ladies left behind an 8-year-old and a 15-year-old daughter. It's happening all around the world, even today. We just haven't seen it yet. The world has always hated the church. St. Clair Ferguson says this, The true church is too different for the world to tolerate. The true church is too different for the world to tolerate it, too different for the world to get cozy with it and say, I'm okay with you. We're so different that the response many times is, I hate you and I will kill you. Ezra 4 is in the Bible to remind you of this truth. There will be people who try and discourage you from following Jesus Christ. Family members, it may be your spouse, close friends, co-workers. And if you get red hot on fire for Jesus, even some Christians will tell you, simmer down now. So you must beware of discouragement. 
Well, not only did the adversaries keep pounding and slamming discouragement against the returned exiles in a Hebrew participial fashion, they even wrote letters to governing authorities to squash the rebuilding effort. Here's an overview of what's happening in Ezra 4. Ezra 4 is laid out like this. Ezra 4 is not laid out chronologically. In verses 1 through 5, during the reign of Cyrus, that's what we read about. Cyrus reigned from 559 to 530 B.C. In verse 6, you have something that's happening during the reign of Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes I. Verse 7, you have something happening during the reign of Artaxerxes. Verse 8 through 23, something that's happening again through the reign of Artaxerxes I. And then in verse 24, the author of Ezra and Nehemiah will come back to something that's happening during the reign of Darius. So this first wave of hatred, which we just read about, happens in verses 1 through 5 during the reign of Cyrus. Verse 6 then fast forwards to a description of a hate letter written to Ahasuerus. Then verse 7 fast forwards again to a hate letter written by Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil to King Artaxerxes. Then verse 8 fast forwards to another hate letter written to Artaxerxes by Rehum and Shimshai, which we will read in a few moments. And all of the sermon notes will be online if you want to be able, you're not getting all that down. But all of these accounts of hatred get included here by the author of Ezra and Nehemiah to stress just how bad things were. It's as if the author just wants to keep piling up all of the persecution that the exiles were facing to make a point. But let's look at each one. The first letter is in verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So there's the first letter. The second letter, look at verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. And then we have a third letter in verses 7 through 23 that we're going to read right now. And I want you to notice how they refer to the people of God, how they refer to the city of God as that rebellious and wicked city. I want you to catch the flavor, the vitriol, the disdain, the hatred, and the lies that are prevalent here in their letter. So look at verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes... Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Time out. Basically saying, they're going to rip you off and take your money. Well, of course, the king pays attention at this point. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. 
You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. That's beyond the Euphrates River. Well, King Artaxerxes replies. The king sent an answer. To Rehem, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king. Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Did you catch the tone of those letters, the disdain, the lies, the vitriol, the hatred, the accusations? Now, one scholar estimates that the Persian government during this time gathered between 20 and $35 million in taxes every year. So this is the angle that the adversaries take in their letter. They're basically saying this. If they rebuild this city, you're going to lose $35 million a year because they're going to quit paying taxes because they're rebellious. You've got to stop them, Art. So why does the author in Ezra 4 just start throwing out all of this hatred? Why does the author just keep piling up hatred by the world? Why all of these letters? Why does he interrupt his story between verse 5 and verse 6 and just start dumping all of this stuff out? Why does he fast forward through history and get out of chronological order and tell us all of this? Because he wants us to get the point that if you love Jesus with all of your heart, people will hate you with all of their guts. He piles it up. He even interrupts his storyline just to help us get the point. You will be hated. And when all this hatred and vitriol piled up against the people of God, it led to discouragement, and eventually the Israelites lost sight of their purpose. They were discouraged. They were scared to get to death. They were frustrated, it says in verse 4. And what effect did this have on them? Look at verse 24. And then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The nonstop assaults by their adversaries eventually took a toll on Israel. But Israel serves Yahweh. And Yahweh is not a God who likes to let his enemies have the last word. He has the last word. What seemed like a victory for the adversaries of Israel was not a victory. Even though Israel stopped building the temple and the city walls for many years, it was not a victory. Why? Because God has the last word. The Israelites stopped building for a season, but King Darius came along and he began, he began supporting their rebuilding efforts. 
And that's why Ezra returns to verse 24 and mentions Darius. Because God's people have the last word. Because Yahweh has the last word. There will be more persecution in Israel's future as we look at these books. There will be more adversaries who try and stop the rebuilding of the city of God. But God intervened during the reign of Darius just like he would later on. Ezra wants you to know this, that the people of God will always face accusations from the world as they attempt to be the city of God, to be the city on a hill, to be the alternative society in our own society. Ezra wants you to know that there will always be adversaries. There may even be times when we get weak and scared and we stop doing what we are called to do. But we don't have to fear because we have no reason to fear. And we must never let these accusations from our adversaries cause us to shrink back from being the people of God. When it comes to political issues, the definition of marriage, who can get married and who can't get married. When it comes to things like this, we cannot fear. We must not shrink back from being the people of God. We must let God's word govern our thoughts on whatever topic we're talking about. We must not shrink back. Why? Because God's kingdom is always advancing. God will have the last word through each season and generation. He will have the last word on that last day. Have you figured it out yet? The church has always been here. What's happened to the church? Enemies come and go. Kings come and go. Guess who's still here? It's the church. You have no reason to fear, Grace. We will be here 100 years from now. We will be here 1,000 years from now if Jesus decides to wait before he comes back. We're not going anywhere. Politicians are going to come and go. Thoughts on marriage are going to come and go. Guess who's staying put? We are because we serve the king of the universe and he always has the last word. And that wasn't in my notes. This is what I'm supposed to say next. Ezra 4 just wants to make sure you got the memo. People will hate your guts, but you have to love them to death. You love them enough to keep being the city of God. You love them enough to keep speaking truth. Now, you don't be a jerk about it. Don't be arrogant. Don't be one of those Christians who lack grace and compassion, and you make the rest of us shake our heads. Speak the truth, but do it. In love, have a steel spine, but a soft heart. But don't be surprised if the world hates you, especially after this sermon where I have hammered you with this truth. I just keep saying over and over again in this sermon that you will be hated because I'm just following the author of Ezra and Nehemiah. He keeps hammering away at it, so I'm going to keep hammering away at it. And if that makes you mad, then take it up with him in heaven. I'm just preaching the text. And the text text is trying to tell you that you should not be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if people get offended because you believe in Jesus. Don't be surprised if people get offended if you say God's word should determine whatever issue that we're talking about. Let the gospel message offend them. We aren't to offend people by the way we speak the truth. Let the gospel message offend them, but not you. Speak. Do it gently. Do it lovingly. Do it with tears. 
Let the gospel offend, but you are not to offend. The message of the gospel should offend. It will offend when you tell someone they're a sinner and a rebel against a holy God. And if they don't repent and by faith trust in Jesus Christ, then they will spend eternity in hell forever. That's offensive. People don't like that. But you're called to tell them. And you do it with love. But you are never to offend them. The gospel will offend them. Remember, people will hate your guts, but you have to love them to death. You might literally have to love them to death. You might literally have to lay your life down as a martyr because you love Jesus. You see, love wins when we speak the truth of the gospel boldly, gently, and passionately, and humbly. People will hate your guts, but you have to love them to death. You have to speak the truth in love, knowing that one, they may hate your guts when you tell them. And two, you may have to love them to your own death, to your own martyrdom. You might be eaten by cannibals. There is no guarantee. But there is a guarantee, which John Patton said very well in his reply to Mr. Dixon. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and now your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of of our risen Redeemer. The guarantee is that believers in Jesus Christ come back from the dead one day. And since our bodies are going to rise out of our graves one day in the likeness of Jesus, then we should rise out of our seats in a moment and worship the God who always has the last word. But before we do, one last word from Marion Lovett. He says this, The gospel will be offensive to the Jew, a stumbling block to the Greek foolishness, but it alone is the power of God unto salvation. The language of the gospel will be considered narrow. Jesus will be offensive. God's law will be considered hate speech. Truth itself will be despised and beauty and goodness will become repulsive. And we're already seeing that in our day, aren't we? We are already observing this trajectory, he continues. The days are coming when simply speaking the truth may land people in jail. But that is the antithesis we should expect. Only when the antithesis is maintained can battles be won. The law of God reveals the sins of people, and those who have not ears to hear will lash out against godliness like Cain did against Abel. Because of our compromises, we have lost some ground to the enemy in recent days. Undoubtedly, it will be regained, but to do so will now take stronger soldiers. And God is raising them up even now and preparing them for the front lines. A biblical worldview teaches us not to fear persecution. As strange as that may sound, persecution is a means to further blessing. Death for Jesus is a door to greater life. Suppression of the church is a means for her flourishing. 
Trials are fires that purify, not destroy. So we need to hold up the truth and not be ashamed of the gospel. For too long, we have promoted the government of our nation as its savior. It's time to turn back to Christ. Trust him alone and bow our knee to him alone as the head of all nations and participate willingly in his triumph. Victory is ours. So let's turn our eyes toward Jesus' grace, the one who endured not only intense hatred by the world, but the one who even absorbed the wrath of the holy God for us. Let's stand and sing now that we will overcome because Jesus overcame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Bible is real, that tells it like it is. You don't sugarcoat anything in your word, Father. You tell us straight up, we will be hated because we love you. And so we shouldn't be surprised. I pray that we would love our enemies because they're lost without you, that we would remember that we were lost without you before you regenerated us by your spirit and made us alive and caused us to believe by faith the hope of the gospel. We pray for our enemies, families, co-workers, family members, spouses, that people would come to know Jesus. And we pray for these two girls who lost their mother several weeks ago. God, I pray that they would come to know you if they don't, that they would not be bitter, that their mother's blood and the blood of her cousin, which was spilled on the ground, would become the soil that the seed of the gospel grows in in Somalia. I pray that they would know that you have the last word. Help us to be a church that loves people enough to speak the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.